Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 10. It's going to be me and Nick today. We're going to have a uh, very special guest today. Professor Robert Burgoyne will be on in principal photography. Uh, but first, we will do pickups. I'm Eric Marshall. And I'm Nick Schlegel. And welcome. What's new, Nick? Hey, not, not so much since the last time we, we all met and congregated. Um, I think last time I would mentioned I'd gotten a proposal off to one particular press, and I've just finished a proposal to another press. Just going to have those those two out right now and wait to hear back. Um, just prepping for the semester, you know, uh, got got uh, a 4-4 four, four load, so it's plenty of work keeping me busy, and that's about it. Just really getting ready for the fall. You know, I mean, summer's sadly coming to an all-too-premature end, really. Yeah, it is kind of a bummer. Um, yeah, for me, it's same old, same old. Just trying to, you know, kind of keep everything together, getting the syllabi ready for the for the new semester at uh, the places I'm teaching, and and just trying to kind of keep it together. Um, this episode will come out on uh, August 23rd, which is our ratings palooza. So uh, this is kind of a bonus for those of you who come to iTunes and rate. This is uh, this will come out on the same day, and we do thank you for um, all the iTunes ratings and. Uh, and Stitcher ratings, if you go to Stitcher or wherever you listen, I think most people listen on iTunes. We do appreciate that. And uh, for any more information, you can go to thatsarapshow.com. We do have a pretty large turnout at the event on Facebook. So, um, again, I'd like to echo Eric's gratitude to you all for joining us on in this experiment to see just exactly how many reviews we can get. Hopefully, you know, praiseworthy <laughs> reviews. And... Um, yeah, and so we're hoping that uh, all of you that said you were going to show up are going to show up. That'd be great. And so um, Chris, Chris is not here today. Chris is en route again from from Florida to Michigan, uh, which is going to be good news for us because that means we can record together again, um, all in the same room. It's going to be uh, it'll be nice, uh, and I think he's happy to be back in Michigan. Absolutely, um, he's back for the fall. I know he's picked up a few classes, and we'll be. Uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be great to get all three of us in, you know, in the room together and, and you know, because there's a different dynamic, obviously, when we're less, when we're actually in the same room rather than spread across the country. So, Yeah. And uh, so let's get to our feature presentation, the principal photography. Let's get to the, let's get to the thing here. Welcome to Principal Photography. Today we have Professor Robert Burgoyne of uh, the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, previously of Wayne State University. Uh, I want to tell a quick story before I hand the uh, mic over to Bob, though. Um, when I was uh, a young man many years ago <laughs> in my undergraduate years in college at uh, Wayne State University, uh, I was a French major. And uh, we, like in many universities, I had to take uh, a visual and performing arts requirement uh, to satisfy a general education requirement. 
at Wayne State. And uh, the choices were the usual ones, art history, uh, dance, theater. And, of course, there's intro to film staring you in the face, right? So, of course, you're going to take intro to film. Yeah, I like film. It's okay. I wasn't very passionate about film. I liked it, just like a lot of people. And uh, so I got into this class and thinking, whatever, this will be, you know, uh, just another class. And over the course of that semester, my professor, Robert Burgoyne, our guest today, changed my major <laughs> well not quite okay i kept the french major that's 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 a bit much but I, I i discovered a love of film i discovered that there are um ways to talk about film that i had no idea i learned what goes into uh making film and it, it really changed my life i changed from a Sp- spanish minor to an english minor because that's where the film classes were <laughs> and then um after working at a software company for a year and teaching high school French for a year, I came back to graduate school, back to Wayne State, uh, to have Bob as my dissertation advisor. So uh, listen up, kids. This guy changed this guy knows what he's talking about. So, literally um, changed your life in the course so. of your your studies so yeah so that's just my personal story my little introduction of bob so we're gonna have him say hi well hello and thank you eric that was lovely uh especially seeing as how i sometimes uh lash myself for leading you down the <laughs> the road to perdition uh and in fact to see that uh, you're you're still talking to me is actually a very nice thing <laughs> so uh th- th- thank you uh, happy to be here Great. Um, well, actually, this is we were talking earlier. This is going to be revenge for my dissertation defense. We're going to ask oh, some really hard questions, and uh, yes. this will go in your in your file. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we thought we'd start with just some really um, basic questions. We don't have a uh, really a theme right now for the show. We just thought we'd do a straight interview, and um, we were wondering, kind of, what got you into film? What got you into film studies um, in your in your formative years? Well, that actually, uh, my story is similar to yours. I had a professor who absolutely was inspiring and uh, kind of showed me a way that I could do the things I I most love and have a career at it, perhaps. Uh, and that's uh, Tom Conley, who was at the University of Minnesota uh, in the French department, as a matter of fact, right, right. Uh, who is now at Harvard. So uh, he, he definitely uh, has uh, ridden this way for all it's worth. Uh, and Tom was, I, I took classes with him uh, really throughout my four years of undergraduate study. Uh, and if he wasn't offering anything new, I would take the same class all over again and do an independent study because I just wanted to get what he had to offer. And uh, he he came at it from uh, a French continental theory perspective, so it was very current material. Uh, It gave me uh, a certain orientation to film studies, which was theory-based. For a long while, I considered myself a theorist. Uh, I I really don't anymore, but uh, that that was my orientation and my uh, kind of my angle on film, and uh, it it worked out real nice. Uh, I studied art history and English. Uh, I didn't study French with Tom, but I did, you know, take his courses as I said, and really, on the inspiring aspect was a big part of it, but also. There was a prag- sort of a pragmatic uh, interest here. I knew that I was good at uh, decoding narratives, and I knew I was good at decoding uh, pictorial art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, you know, art history was actually a very. Uh, I was very close to majoring in art history and doing a graduate degree in art history, but 
I, at the time, it was said that you needed three languages minimum, and uh, French, Italian, and German. And uh, that was never my strong suit, uh, so I, I was kind of dissuaded from, from pursuing that, that, uh, that line. But film gave me the opportunity to combine my two areas of strength, narrative analysis and uh, pictorial analysis. And uh, I thought, you know, here I can really do the things I love to do, and um, it's a it's an uh, an emerging field and the field is bound to take off and to become absolutely the defining you know liberal art uh how could it not well (laughs) the latter part didn't work out but but the rest of it most definitely did it's still the dominant you know the dominant form of of uh, artistic uh, expression of the 20th century for 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 incorporating as a nexus discipline all of the other art forms so you're certainly right in that regard um, would you? Was there a particular? Out of curiosity, was there a particular uh, film, for example, that you recall him screening that made you really? I mean, that just sutured you right in, or or no? Do you love them all? No, I'm very particular. <laughs> you know, I'm really, I I uh, I don't have broad tastes. I'm afraid. I I like work that's. I tend to like work that's serious, and the film that I first wrote about in a serious way was open city and uh rome open city was uh you know kind of uh it was transformative once i started writing about it and that's what i found to be the case throughout my career uh i kind of like a film i may be a little bit i'm sort of interested in something i've noticed and then i start writing about it and the next thing it's i'm passionate about it uh so the the two things kind of work together i have to have a my creativity and my creative response to a film is uh, is the basis for my liking it, I guess, rather than you know just having a kind of uh, an immediate you know love relationship with uh, you know the the object. It's much more when I've when I find that I can that I can work with it and that I, and, and that way it speaks to me at a deeper level. Yeah, that's interesting because we talk. We've talked in previous episodes about value judgments and liking things, and like how you, you know, it's better to to kind of qualify that sort of thing. But I never thought about it the other way around. Is when you begin to analyze and think more deeply about something, you tend to like it more, right? And then you hate it, and then you like it again because you know, maybe, right? But yeah, that's really interesting. I never, I'd never really thought of it like that. And I do the same thing because you start to really understand something, right, um, a lot differently, and you can appreciate it more, which is maybe something we can tell students as well, right? As why well, do this analysis, right? That sort of thing. Um, I had another. Yeah, I had a uh, in building off of this biographical background, Bob. I I seem to recall, although it might have been at one of you know your your book part book release parties, so there, you know, the, the memory might be slightly you know hazy and tinged with alcohol. But yeah. <laughs> oh, there's only one. Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, there you go. There's the, the, I rest my case. Um, I seem to recall a a story of you in in Minneapolis leaving on a bus for NYU for graduate school. Is this am I am I correct in this? Or, uh, you flew. Okay, there was something I thought about a a bus. Uh, or something like that, or being dropped off, or whatever. But you were heading off to NYU for graduate school, and I seem to recall it was it was a pretty big moment for you. You were sort of saying goodbye to your to your to your home state and opening up a whole new world of ideas for you. And and I would just want you know, could you bridge the gap for us between your undergraduate and graduate work? Right. Well, um, 
I knew that NYU was where I wanted to go. Uh, it was considered the top-rated department in film studies at the time. Um, and so this was what I had my sights set on. Uh, I did, you know, my undergraduate had gone well. I had done a summa thesis on Rome Open City, as a matter of fact, which became my first publication. And uh, so the trip to NYU was, you know, I, I went in with absolutely you know, high expectations. Actually, I thought I would be fetid. I figured there'd be rose petals thrown a strewn in my path. I, I thought there'd be a trumpet fanfare when I walked into Washington Square Park, but uh, that wasn't quite what happened. Uh, I was um, I was immediately kind of struck by just how, uh, I guess how how I had to recreate myself uh, in. New York. Uh, the Midwest style of kind of letting things come to you was not going to make it there. That was not going to cut it. You have to go out and get it. You have to be uh, forward. You have to be a lot more aggressive in terms of your personal style. Not offensively so, but you, you have to let your needs and your interests be known, and you've got to be quite verbal about it. And that, that was a change for me. I went from being a, a rather kind of, uh, what I guess... In, inhibited and uh, you know introverted Midwesterner to really finding that you know I had to stage myself and had to make my my interests my perceptions my stake in things known and and had to had to learn that pretty quickly and it was really the, in some ways the best lesson for me uh, it it taught me that you know you can put yourself out there and people will respond and uh, so that's that's actually. Uh, you know, a big life change for me and a big change in, in the way I, I approach the profession uh, and and kind of relate to the world, I would say. That's fa- you know, I, I, I was just um, I was just at NYU this summer for a conference and thought of you while I was there and Kirsten as well. I know she did her graduate work there. And it was my first trip to Manhattan. Uh, I'd been to New York before, but never in Manhattan proper. And as I was making my way through Greenwich Village and walking around in Washington Square, and I was staying in Union Square right across from the Strand Bookstore, I thought to myself, wow, I wonder what this was, what this was like when you were a graduate student there. What was the energy and, and vibe like at Greenwich Village at that time? Well, the village was you know, always the place. I mean, it's the only place you want to be in New York. Uh, that's, that's, there's so much, uh, diversity. There's such a, a kind of a, a pulse there. Uh, and that, that again was very surprising. Uh, but the village became the place I wanted to be always. I never wanted to leave, uh, but I did because I was living up in the Columbia University neighborhood, uh, up on uh, 116th Street, as a matter of fact, 125th Street, sorry, 116th is Columbia and 125th is where I was living. And uh, my girlfriend at the time was a Columbia student and she, uh, they, when I said that I had expected rose petals and a fanfare coming well she had gotten those rose petals and fanfare and had gotten and they had found an apartment for her and everything else so that's where i was living and with it is yes it is and just right there on 125th street and riverside drive and uh, it's a very nice building however and you know really excellent but too far from the village uh the every time i had to kind of you know 
walk over to the number one subway line and uh, take the train up to uh, 125th Street, uh, I thought, gosh, I don't want to be leaving the village. I mean, this is this, there's so much happening here. There's so much activity. Everybody's so good looking. Uh, this is where I want to be. And soon enough, I managed it and got myself an apartment through uh, New York University Student Housing. A very nice place. Uh, I could uh, when I started TAing at NYU, I could basically get up ten minutes before class, down a cup of coffee, and and be in, in the classroom, and uh, that that was absolutely heaven sent. Uh, once I used up my eligibility for the space, though, they were going to boot me out, and that's when the uh, job opportunity at Wayne State came along so the timing worked out really well uh, but uh, for the three and a half years that four years nearly that I lived in Washington Square Village uh, it was it was terrific absolutely terrific I, I think Eric and I are uh, certainly very jealous of those at that time of your timing and the, the, your experiences there now that I've experienced it even you know quite some time later boy what a what a time that must have been. A lot of fond memories, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, Detroit's got its charm as well. <laughs> but, you know, definitely. But, um, yeah, it's different for sure. Yeah. So you spent, uh, you know, a good chunk of your career at Wayne State, obviously. And you've uh, you've recently moved to Scotland, what, three years ago? Yeah, three years ago. Um, and we were wondering... Um, if there are any kind of what kind of big differences you see in doing scholarship in in um, in the UK or slash Europe versus the United States, um, you know what it's like kind of teaching there. Are there uh, are there huge differences or is it kind of all the same? There are uh, major differences um, as far as the scholarly kind of environment. Uh, it's one one difference is that Europe and the UK there's far more opportunities for symposia conferences uh and and guest lectures uh because it's close uh geographic things are close to one another geographically uh there's a lot more going on in terms of guest appearances and symposia and things like that. And so it's, for instance, I, and I don't mean to, you know, feather my cap, but I've got four talks coming up this coming term and uh, I'm not going to say no. Uh, I mean, I'm eager to do all of them. And so uh, this, as far as that goes, it's, there's actually a lot of interaction and a lot of kind of sharing of perspectives. So you get to meet the, the faculty in other departments, uh, universities and you know people know one another and know the work that that's being done so that that actually is is nice for me I, I quite like it uh, as for the teaching there's really a lot of differences surprising how many uh, the at the lower division level for example all the classes are team taught that is I might come in and do a lecture one week uh, a lecture the second week and then I won't see the students again until the 10th week of the semester uh, and so it's you know the having that kind of organic uh, quality to the classroom experience where you are t where the, you're going from the first week through to the last and you're building on what you've done before uh, that that is hard to do when you're teaching at the lower division level uh, the upper division seminars uh, are taught very much the way they are in the US uh, it's uh, your, your subject you take the class from the beginning to the end uh, and they 
but they are actually seminars. Uh, and I attended uh, at Wayne State. I attended lecture uh, quite a lot more than I probably should have. I was uh, uh, somebody said that to me once, and um, in the UK, that's the people uh, for when you're doing a seminar, that would not be the way to go. The students are prepared. They're ready to speak. They have their points, and uh, they they uh, you're you're essentially uh, asked as Nick just said, to moderate, uh, to kind of spark the conversation, direct it, uh, but uh, allow them to kind of, you know, carry the ball. And so that was a big change for me, too, because I came in and I was, you know, I had my usual 12 pages of notes and would start launching and start using the whiteboard. And, uh, you know, they're all kind of getting a bit impatient. And then I realized, no, no, I'm, I'm going to, I've got to let them kind of carry the day and I'm there to just kind of keep things, uh, going uh, productively. That's, that's really interesting. I, I remember being in classes with the European students, um, the, uh, school for criticism and theory at Cornell for that summer program I did. And there was a different, I, I noticed a difference in, in and I hadn't even thought about it until you mentioned that, like there is a different, they come with a different sort of preparedness, right. Um, which is why it's expected of them, right. Kind of, um, uh, in a lot of ways. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. I think, um, our experience of seminars, what do you think, Nick, uh, your experience with seminars at uh, Wayne state? The seminars I've taught at Wayne, uh, I try to teach it from a more of a moderating standpoint, but and, and therefore structure the syllabus around um, class particip- participation in terms of presentations and uh, you know things like that, uh, which you, you did as well, Bob. Um, but it, it's I find that it's 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 challenging. It's tough. Um, you know, if the students have done the reading, sometimes the readings are challenging. So it requires some some unpacking in core in the class before we can actually get to a level of yeah. supposed discourse that we want to be at. So you might spend some time trying to deal with sort of some uh, below the surface ideas before you actually get to where you want to be. And then, of course, there's time issues, but. Um, I, in the documentary and nonfiction seminar, that wasn't the case. Everybody was really on top of it. The readings were fantastic. The the, the films, great. Something like cult movies was was uh, uh, even more rewarding, but um, more challenging because there there was a lot of sort of basic critical and cultural theory that informed the, the cult movie phenomenon that had to be addressed early in the semester. And I think. Some students, their heads were bleeding a little bit, you know, but which is what I wanted to some degree. So, um, you know that. But I love that's that's where my bread and butter is. Though. I mean, that's I, seminars are my are my 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 passion. So, what about you? Um, yeah, it's kind of the same. You know, it's hard to get. Uh, sometimes it's hard to feel people people to participate on the level that that you kind of expect or want. Um, but you know, you adjust as you go. I know that documentary class you had. You had a really great. You, uh, you had a wonderful guest lecture. I was going to say, <laughs> only because it was me, <laughs> and Errol Morris. Errol Morris. Yeah, and the Errol Morris discussion was great. Errol was our case study for the semester. So. Yeah, yeah, that was that was good. Um, so. This just came to me. What's it like seeing movies? You guys have movie theaters in St. Andrews that you can like do like first run stuff, or what are, what's the release schedule like over there? Do you get to get to go to the theater and see movies? Well, there's a theater, a cinema directly next to the Department of Film Studies. Uh, so quite my, I've got you know here's the big, the smallish sign on our wall stay, saying Department of Film Studies, which was one of the things that most attracted me to the place. When I saw that Department of Film Studies, which is what I always dreamed of 
uh, of being part of that that really uh, that that was seductive. I, I'll admit. And right next door is the new Picture House, as it's called, which is a big first run cinema, uh, purpose built in I don't know nineteen twenty six, nineteen twenty seven. So it's it's big. Uh, it's only it's pretty restricted in terms of what they book, unfortunately. But a, a bus ride of about a half an hour away is the town of the city of Dundee, and the Dundee Contemporary Arts uh, is a wonderful uh, space for films. Uh, they have three beautiful contemporary cinemas, uh, and there's a, a, a nice pub there, a very nice restaurant, and a gallery space. And that that is where you go for the uh, edgy films for the uh, festival films for the things that uh, such as are shown at the at the DFT. Uh, this is this is the space for it, and it's and we're good friends. The curator of films there uh, is a good friend of ours, a good friend of the Department of Film Studies at St Andrews, and uh, she's she's always open to our suggestions. For the most part, she she's traveling to festivals and knows what to book and uh, brings in uh, you know the the current films that that were most interested in seeing so bob you know your your uh tenure at wayne was a long one you were there for for years and you 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 minted eric and you were <laughs> you were on my committee as well minted, minted eric and you're on my committee as well until you left for scotland any particular accomplishments at wayne state that that you reflect upon with a lot of pride or anything uh over the course that you were you were, cause you were there a long time obviously you had a tremendous impact on People from my department, the communication department, we would cognate in, in English, and so we would take courses with you, for example, and you opened up my eyes, as, as any great professor would, to a tremendous wealth of, of material out there I wasn't, uh, wasn't aware of, readings, particular films, and you know, really elevated the level of uh, textual analysis that I was at at the time. So, But in addition, anything while you were there that you wanted to comment on or anything that you were really particularly proud of? Well, I I love teaching at Wayne. Uh, there was uh, teaching and researching at Wayne. This was excellent for me in all ways, uh, and I would have happily concluded my career there. But this opportunity came along, and um, it at St Andrews, and I just thought, you know, either I I'm going to take the plunge, or I'm going to wonder what would have happened. And I my wife encouraged me, Tova encouraged me to to, to go for it, uh, and they were very. Uh, flattering to me they treated me they uh, kind of held out a you know a, a nice uh, open uh, open armed invitation that uh, that I finally accepted but the and that, but I did go back and forth and, and kind of wondered whether that was you know really the right decision or not um, I enjoyed my time at Wayne I enjoyed mostly the students uh, that was fabulous for me I still see students uh, all around town uh, that will come up to me and and tell me you were my professor uh, you probably don't remember well in fact I usually do and if I get the name I, I definitely remember them because and because because I've saved all my great books and you know and I can and in fact that just happened this uh, about two months ago and a woman at party said you you won't remember me but you're my professor you were my professor and uh so that that was uh, diane is her name and that was absolutely wonderful uh to to meet people who remember the class who still have uh you know uh, a real sense of the enthusiasm for film and uh who can in some cases tell me 
what the screening list was for that semester. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed that. The one source of frustration for me at Wayne was that we could never bake it a department of film studies, which is, is something I tried several times uh, in various uh, roles. Administ- I was an administrator for the chair of the department and head of film studies various times. And that's something we really thought would would work. Uh, we had, had a very uh, good uh, faculty uh, combining, uh, if you combine the faculty in English and the faculty in communications, that was a first-rate faculty, and uh, I think we could have made a go of it. Uh, but there were bureaucratic uh, hurdles. Uh, we were told this is never going to happen, and uh, time and again we were frustrated. And for the undergraduate classes, that didn't really affect us. But for the graduate classes, it did, because it reduced the graduate population by half. Uh, if we could have had a unified graduate program communi- uh, in film studies, we could have we could have gone places, and we would have had the faculty to do it, which is the hardest thing to get, and they, that was already in place. And we could have attracted, I think, some ta- talented students even more than we than we did. Eric and uh, Nick being examples uh, of two of the most talented students who have come out of the program. So that that was a source of frustration, and that is partly why. To see a, a, a department of film studies that was welcoming me in uh, was so appealing. Um, yeah, and, and I'm just before I uh, close that subject and give pass the mic back to Eric. I wanted to say that yeah, I had a world class uh, film education at Wayne State. But next, my advisor Jackie Byers uh, mentored me the entire way, taught me an incredible amount. But in the English department, Bob Burgoyne, uh, Kirsten Thompson, and Steve Shaviro. Uh, less I didn't know too well. You know less a lot better than I did. But, but that rounded out my film education. And, and you know, these are, these are big names. And these are, this is a world-class education I got in film. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. It's a, it's a great faculty, um, for sure. It's split over two departments. But, um, but you finally got your rose petals. Right, Bob? <laughs> All these years. Yep. <laughs> Marquee on the, on, the, on the theater. I mean, that's, that's, what you were, that's what you wanted, right? They must have known, right? He's finally, finally got that. So, so, um, so you're, one of the, you're one of the foremost scholars in, in national identity in film, in war films. I know you're writing about war films right now, I think, right? Um, and, and, and in memory in film, uh, things like that. Uh, we all have our subjects. Uh, you know, Nick is a Spanish horror. Um, me, I'm more digital cinema, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm wondering uh, kind of what got you there, you know, into, into those things. And kind of what are you working on now in, in, in if you want to talk about what you're working on now, maybe you don't want to talk about that. But um, and uh, kind of what got you into into those particular um, that particular field or, or specialty, I guess is the word. Well, thanks, Eric. Um, I, as I said a, a few minutes earlier, I originally uh, thought of myself as a theorist, and in particular a narrative theorist, because this was uh, something I was fascinated by. I was fascinated by the uh, power of narrative to. Uh, rope us in to compel psychological identification and to kind of and to create worlds uh, worlds that we were fully engaged with during the course of the of the storytelling and I wanted to see how that worked so I became kind of a structural narratologist I suppose and uh, published uh, in that area for um, 
for some time. And, uh, but my, dis- my dissertation project from NYU combined both narrative theory and historiography. And that was a, a treatment of Bertolucci's 1900, which is a marvelous film. It just came up in conversation the other night. Um, it's, uh, the film was compelling to me for its narrative power, but also for its historical kind of vision, its historic, the allegories of history that were threaded through it. And so I, I combined the two perspectives uh, in, uh, in some ways. I, I treated the film as a narrative problem, as a question of narrative, but also as one that engaged with a kind of a deep story structural historical uh, idea and uh, a Marxist idea of history, really. And so I was working on these two sides of the film uh, kind of simultaneously in the doing of my dissertation. Uh, Once that was completed, uh, I I kept going in narrative theory and uh, was actually very, it's a very satisfying intellectual endeavor, really satisfying, but almost nobody works in that area. Uh, Time and again, I would see calls for papers at conferences. I would go to the SCMS conference and look in vain for a single panel on narrative theory. And so it was so, it was such a tiny uh, kind of uh, sub-discipline or uh, sub uh, subject within film studies. The people who were in it were wonderful. Edward Brannigan, for example, uh, David Bordwell, uh, Noel Carroll, but the people, but there were very few of them. And so there too, there was a bit of a pragmatic decision to shift focus from narrative theory to history and film and historiography and film. And uh, so my second book then was Film Nation, Hollywood Looks at U.S. History. And that uh, that was so much fun to work with texts at, at a more emotional level uh, of, uh, of appeal. Uh, you, with narrative theory, it's, you know, people accuse it of being dry. It is, it's intellectually satisfying, but, but there is a certain, you have to kind of, you're, you're dusting, dusting off the surface elements of the text in order to get to the core structures. And in fact, it's the surface levels of the text that most of us love. And so the, you know, with, uh, historic historiography and film and the kind of, uh, imaging of history in film, I was able to talk about the editing, about the lighting, about the, uh, the set, uh, about the camera movement, about all of it. And about the emotional kind of, uh, exchanges, uh, among the characters. So that, that was, you know, that has really been my defining subject for probably the last 20 years odd years. And, uh, it's one that I'm continuing to unfold. Uh, I wrote a book called, uh, the Hollywood historical film, uh, fairly recently. And I divided the historical film into five sub, uh, sections or five sub, sub, um, genres. Uh, and, uh, those sub those five sub genres, I, I called the epic, the war film, the biopic, the meta historical film, and the topical film. And I had uh, chapters on each one of those. And I've kind of realized that what I'm doing now is I'm kind of, un- uh, I'm kind of uh, fleshing out that idea of the five uh, subgenres of the historical film by doing work on each of them in a more detailed way. So I did a text on the epic film. Uh, I'm now doing something on the war film. Uh, I've just done a, an essay on the biopic uh, that uh, I don't know that I'll be doing a book-length study of that. I, I rather doubt it. 
but uh, this is this is uh, I think kind of what what I'm doing. I'm kind of trying to fill in the material that I was only treating kind of sketchily in the in the book, uh, the Hollywood historical film. So I'll just. I'll stop now. <laughs> well, that is genius, though. If it turns out that the 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 one central publication has been has given you enough uh, ammunition or fuel to do subsequent uh, explorations of these subgenres, how how amazing is that? Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's and it was really. I like how you. I've always liked how you can succinctly kind of uh, summarize what you're doing without you know without. Um, without getting too bogged down, right? You can always go with different levels because that's what we try to do on this podcast, right? We're trying to figure out, like, what's that middle ground between the theory and the academic stuff and, and your kind of popular culture, what's beneath the surface, right? And I think you do a good job of that. Um, and the uh, the historical film, I, I, I think that's it's very interesting. I like, I like the subcategories, subgenres that, you, that you've got laid out. Um, and that's, that's a great approach, you know, at this, you know, at this stage where you can start filling in like you said, what you've you know the the holes, I guess, of what you've already done. Um, I imagine Nick doing that at some point <laughs> after this <laughs> after this book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know. And um, I mean, if you choose wisely, right, and you structure it well, you've got you can get a lot out of it. It's uh, yeah. I think Bob, I wouldn't short sell the biopic. You know, I mean, that is certainly it's one of my favorite things. I mean, an intro to film. I just off the top of my head, for all these years, I've been showing two bio picks in intro to film without even thinking about it i show ed wood and the people versus larry flint which are two biopics you know um and which also tie you know ties into the core ideas of historical representation as well and you know where things are gotten right and wrong and for what purpose but um is there anything right now uh any any films of the last year that have really sort of gotten under your skin and you feel that you need to at some point write about them or you've taken notes about them or there's something something that Malik did or you know the one new brand new essay that I've done this summer uh was uh, an essay on zero dark 30 oh. and so that is you know right in my wheelhouse i mean that that film is it i consider it a war war on terror film uh it's really powerful and i think it really um it's it does something uh that i think is um pretty well unique in all kinds of ways in american cinema but one of the things that it, it that i was struck by was how the I, the idea and the theme of violence is treated in the film uh it's the, the idea of violence of course the film unfolds under the sign of violence it's you know graphically uh, close up, uh, both acoustically and visually. Uh, it's the film starts with you know the uh, acoustic montage of 9/11, then shifts to the torture cell uh, in uh, Pakistan. It's a very graphic and and I think uh, very visceral kind of encounter with violence. And this this is what uh, one theorist I've been uh, critic I've been reading has has called uh, a form a, a kind of disenchanted violence. The violence that we see in those the first half of the film is graphic, brutal, excessive, and it disenchants the whole kind of idea of violence as any kind of solution. Uh, at the end of the film, however, I think we shift to 
the opposite. I think we shift to an enchanted idea of violence. When you see the special ops team coming in with their almost otherworldly skill and communication and their, their, their clockwork patter, patterning, the, the green night vision goggles that we look through, the fact that the, our identification is almost entirely swept up in now the mission uh, which is going to be accomplished and this is going to be the you know the kind of the resolution which it turns out not to be but it enchants that violence uh, it gives it a very different cast from what we had seen earlier and so the film is kind of working with both of these uh, poles uh, it's the the most graphic kind of disenchantment the most graphic kind of you know bodily infliction that we see early on and then we shift to an almost um what i guess a, a kind of uh sense of of a new um of a new uh i guess teamwork taking over the skill of the special ops group and their kind of uh effectiveness in in res- in in the procedural uh, that uh, we've seen unfold takes us into a kind of very murky realm. And so the film, I, what I'm trying to work out is how the film brings these two perspectives to bear. Uh, doesn't really um, assign uh, explicit editorial value to one or the other, but juxtaposes these two modes of kind of conceiving and representing war in the contemporary period, both radically disenchanted and enchanted to the point where we don't even notice the bodies on the floor. Oh, wow. That's, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Nick and I saw that movie together. And uh, when you were talking, I was, I was trying to conjure up the images from the film. And I do remember the very beginning that, that violence in, uh, in Guantanamo, it, it goes on for a long time. Like those scenes are are very long, and that, there was a lot of controversy about that film, as you recall. But um, I remember it was very low tech, right? Uh, there was usually a room, a chair, a bucket of water, perhaps that, that sort of thing, right? Um, in those scenes, and then, like you say, the uh, at the very, very end, that set piece at the end, which you're kind of building up to the entire time, is is very surgical. That was the word that came to mind for me. You get the green, like you said, the green um, night vision thing that you see in the in the in the walkie talkies, and so it's very like the technology is different, right? It's, it's technologized almost in a way. You have guns, walkie talkies. Um, night vision goggles, right, and it's very surgical, and it's removed in a way. Nobody in in the um, in those first scenes, if I remember correctly, they're they're physically very close to these to these uh, prisoners, and I think they're they're hitting them at some point. I think, right, yeah. And in the um, at the end, it's it's all kind of remote, even though it's close, right? It's very close quarters, but it's all. When someone dies, it's through a gun, right, and, and all that. So that's very interesting. So there's like the technology also mediates in a way, in a way that like you say editorially, it doesn't give weight 
more weight to one or the other. And I think I believe you, but I, do, I also see a movement there, though, from one to the other, which is hard not to to, to give value to the latter. Which also, I don't know if you've um, if you're also writing about um, her former film, the, the Hurt Locker, which kind of does the same thing in a way. Um, it's about the it's about terror, right? It's about violence, and it's about. I mean, there's a lot of technology. That guy, the scene, for example, with the guy with the cell phone, sure. they're trying to get him to drop the cell phone, if you recall that. Um, so I think uh, maybe uh, Catherine Bigelow has between those two films. I think you can see a lot of that same sort of uh, sensibility. I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, the The framing of the of the evolution in the film from the, the first act to the third act the, with the enchantment and disenchantment is fascinating. I can't wait to read it. The second act, of course, is just is is what bridges it all is, is procedural sort of teamwork, the classic you know legwork. We need to get out there and be very a uh, sort of technological in the sense that they're just ascribing billions of hours and time to finding out when this dude's going to use his phone, which is classic police procedural type stuff that ties these two, two other acts together. And it, I was blown away by the film. Obviously I, I remember reading Steve Shaviro's he's, you know, enamored with Catherine Bigelow and reading his, his initial responses to it. Uh, and especially in light of the controversy and all the NPR things and everybody's sort of like uh, casting value judgments on the director and on the narrative and on the script and stuff. But it seemed to me that all, all seemed so, so secondary to, what the the central ambitions of the film were um and i thought a lot of it got lost in the sort of politicizing of the film and then along comes someone like bob who can mediate all that and 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 i i would look really forward to to reading that uh is there anything you want to add uh, no, I, I think I've said my piece. <laughs> I I like your responses, though. Uh, I I agree with uh, Steve's Steve Shaviro's piece was uh, inspiring for me because I had something to work against uh, because he um, he uh, really kind of elevates the procedural aspect of the film, makes a very good political reading of the procedural form, uh, which I liked a lot. I found it really uh, thought provoking. Uh, I. For my, from my point of view, the film is not really centered on its procedural moments. Uh, I think those those are the procedural aspect of the film comes through strongest in the middle portion. Uh, it really is. It's kind of like the cartilage that holds the two uh, major movements together. Uh, it's fun to watch. It's engaging. Uh, but the real core of the film, I think, has to do with this this kind of uh, study of violence as a kind of a, a a new aesthetic and imaginative and and even uh, the the kind of the uh what the priority of violence as a kind of default response in contemporary um geopolitical culture is uh i think emphasized in the film and it's what i would like to uh it's the way i read it uh as as being a kind of a study of this of this new almost aesthetic and historical and imaginative uh, kind of space that we're inhabiting right now. Um, I don't have anything to add to that, but <laughs> no, that's great. Um, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. We should do a episode on on war films or something like that at some point, right? No but uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Did you have a? You know, every time you guys are together, Nick and Bob, you, I. I 
tend to remember something about the thin red line coming up. Do you guys have some kind of disagreement about yeah, that well, that you I wanted know. to? Uh... <laughs> Initially, when 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 you know when Bob's opinion to me was it's still important, obviously, but it, it, then I we, we 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 shared a love of Malik, and I always thought that the thin red line was such a, a a powerful and transformative and probably the greatest war film of the last sixty years because of its of its ambitions, uh, the philosophical war film. Um, and it's, it's that wonderful, um, polemic between man and nature and the, and, and I could never get Bob to sort of like sit down and watch it. And then when he did, I think, I think I'm not, I think he wound up really loving it quite well, Nick, you were way ahead of me on this. (laughs) (laughs) This film is spectacular. It's brilliant. It's one of the most beautiful and one of the most, you know, moving films I've ever seen. And uh, I, I have come 180 degrees round the other way uh, about the thin red line. Well, I was never negative about it. Mm-hmm. it just, I don't think you'd seen much yeah. of it and was like, well, you know, I'll yeah. get to it. Yeah. Uh, there are scenes that are so uh, powerful and grim and, and kind of disturbing because of the, uh, the obvious, the counterpoint of the po- poetic uh, voiceover narrative, the poetic um, cinematography, and the what we're witnessing. Uh, it's the the contrast, the counterpoint between those things is so pronounced that it just sends you in two different it, it, onto two different emotional uh, uh, waves simultaneously, and it's really, I, I think, very effective aesthetically a really powerful and wonderful film i just showed that though i had a warren cinema uh, seminar last year and i showed the film and walked in thinking that everybody would have the same response as i finally had uh (laughs) thanks to nick kind of prodding me uh you know initially uh the students weren't keen on it uh it surprised me uh i i came in you know having watched it again the night before and feeling completely uh, overwhelmed by it uh, and thinking that this would be the response of, of my uh, 22-year-old students. Uh, not so. Uh, they, re- almost to a person, rejected it uh, and and did not, uh, didn't get it, uh, obviously. And I think the, uh, the lyricism combined with the with the with the grit uh just you know they couldn't find a way in and uh it uh and i tried for the next two hours to convince them but (laughs) but uh, i don't think i succeeded no problems there i i had the exact same you know for a long time i tried to i mean but at 22 or 18 or sometimes there are films that are just a difficult watch and where you're at in life may dictate your response to it you know and so i think that uh, like you said the lyricism combined with the grit is an odd mix uh one that mainstream audiences are not accustomed to in their sort of saving private ryan aesthetic approach to war um, and they need more of a narrative to hook them in, I think. And the thin red line is, you know, there's there's not a heavy narrative to to hang. There's, it's it's kind of it's about it's it's about behavior. It's about a time. It's about a place. It's sort of anti-narrative in certain ways. Um, and we never, you know, one of the one of the clever things that Malik does is, you know, we we never actually focus on one protagonist. Really, you know, we're kind of across multiple voiceovers, multiple miniature narratives within the film. We spend a little, you know, which mirrors and echoes the experience of of a soldier, right? They, they're people coming in and out of their lives left and right and stuff. But yeah, I certain, and of course, Hans Zimmer's score always kills me. I, when I show that film, it's usually clips. 
and it's usually in relationship to like a history of film class where we're talking, we're spending a great amount of time on World War II, and I'll usually show the journey to the line scene, which is which some some students respond to with tears, which is this ten minute sequence, you know, where they're you know they they go and it's you know wow it's intense. Right. Yeah, I think Malik has that kind of polarizing kind of thing for a, in a lot of ways i remember when tree of life um came out i think we all liked that film um all three of us and uh but a lot of people didn't right and a lot of people didn't respond to it and i think the what you said about finding your way in is 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 uh, a big part of that people can't you know find the way in for for various reasons um so yeah i was i i, so I thought you had a disagreement about it it was just basically you know if, if, for those of you who know nick nick's a big evangelizer he really like he always has a list of films that you have to watch, right? And sometimes, you know, it takes a while to get to those films. And so, and usually he, he'll steer you right. He's not going to steer you wrong most of the time, but, you know, most of the time. And uh, I can't think of any at the moment that he's steered me wrong on. But, yeah, so that was Nick in evangel- evangelizer mode. Is that hounding, a word? <laughs> Evangelical hounding Bob hounding to watch Bob. it. So that's what that was. Well, okay. Because it was the war, <laughs> the, the war film that I had the most uh, invested in. And I thought I, I it was just the one that spoke to me. The, and resonated deep, most deeply within right. me. Yeah, that makes. Yeah, it makes perfect. That makes perfect sense. Um, I always find that you know when I tell people I you know I'm a, I teach film, I have a film PhD. Um, everyone's always like, oh, have you seen X, Y, or Z? And we don't, you don't have so much time, right? We can't see everything, but it's always, everyone's always shocked. Like, you haven't seen, well, I haven't seen everything. That's how it goes. Right. And that's just right. That's how it, that's how it sometimes goes. So, um, I remember one time, Bob, I'm just kind of riffing here at this point, but, um, uh, you told me once <laughs> I might cut this, but, uh, you told me once, I believe that when you are at a party, <laughs> you want to tell us, <laughs> Yes. Well, yes. I was hoping you. When, when, when I used to go to parties when I was at Wayne and I was in the English department, um, teaching film studies. uh, If I wanted the conversation to continue, I would tell the person, "Well, yes, I'm in film studies," and uh, that would lead to you know, hours worth out invariably. And it was, you know, the, so the, the people I wanted to attract people I liked, I was, I was interested in kind of, you know, cultivating that side of things. Uh, if I didn't want the conversation to go on though, I would tell them I was a professor of English. <laughs> And that that had the immediate effect of you know of staunching any further conversational attempts, uh, and within I would say within fifteen seconds they had, they would be gone from the room. <laughs> so, but I now now I, I'm no longer you know I, I can't go that route anymore. So I've just got to own up to what I actually do. So, and. Uh, and see where it, see where it goes. Yeah, it's on the letterhead now. Nothing you can do about it. <laughs> right? Yeah, you can't do the English thing anymore. <laughs> That's great. I love that story. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Bob. Before we wrap things up, um, I was curious. You know, you've been at this for a while. It's been it's been a few decades now, and I was curious. Uh, just in the ten years that I've been teaching, I've noticed massive differences in 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 culture in in the student in the types of films that are being made and the approaches to films that are being made, the ways in which we're watching them, culture changing technology and so on. Could, can you share with us how it's, how, how, you know, like where things were when you began and how, how, 
you know, how radically have they changed in terms of teaching film? Well, uh, thanks, Nick, because this was the one question I was actually prepared to answer. <laughs> so, because I, I was forewarned, uh, but um, and I'm glad that you remembered to ask it. <laughs> so, very good. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, for me, uh, it really hasn't changed in terms of my own style of performing in terms of my uh, the way I relate to the students in terms of what the students bring uh, I'm a, I was reflecting on this because I Eric had said that this was something that they, you guys were going to cover and um, it really hasn't uh, to tell you the truth I'm uh, my style of presentation is very much the same as it was uh, except I'm more theatrical than ever uh, I'm much more in fact uh, because I'm old enough now I can get away with with it <laughs> and so really in in my thinking about this question i i actually the one thing that really has changed for me is the physical aspect of doing film studies as you know kind of banal as this is going to seem after all this kind of you know fairly good stuff that we've shared here um the the fact that film studies used to be a very physically demanding and in some ways the uh, job and in some ways there was a craft involved uh, working with film threading a projector splicing a film putting up clips on a projector uh, knowing how to do real changes uh, getting you know getting the timing down knowing what to do when the projector isn't working uh, you know to, keeping the sound good uh, all of that there was an intensely kind of tactile aspect to that part of the job and um it's you know usually it it uh it was something i cursed at the time because the, the, having to drag you know four film cans uh, four boxes of films rather uh, across campus by the time i'd by the time i'd get up to the the Manugian, i was actually drenched in sweat uh then bringing the projectors down uh, to the uh to the classroom and setting them up uh and you know getting uh the the whole apparatus uh, going and ready, uh, all you know in the in the ten minutes that you've got as the classes are changing, uh, that that actually kind of that got me going, and uh, I was I was you know fully uh, uh, adrenalized and 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 aerobically you know kind of <laughs> kind of ready <laughs> by the time class began. So uh, even though I used to be jealous of all the English professors who would carry just a book of sonnets to class. <laughs> Now I carry my DVDs, and uh, I, I still regard that as something that that has changed. It's the loss of of a kind of physical relation to to the object uh, that uh, that I think I, in retrospect, I appreciate it. Do we want to add our thoughts to the matter, or no? Sure. That's incredibly fascinating, Bobby. I hadn't I hadn't thought that that's how you might phrase your answer and frame it in terms of the, a lot of the, the the physicality of it and the the loss of that craft of actually projecting a film and as you say, pausing it, stopping it on the on the frame in in uh, you know when they're cutting the eye or something like that. Yeah, but. Um, for me, just only only over the course of 10 years, one decade, I would say that the thing that I've noticed the most is I, I have a hard time competing with cell phones. That seems to be <laughs> the real bane uh, of, of teaching in general. But I mean, it's, it's particularly sort of difficult with film because you turn the lights off, you screen a film, and then 
all the lights come on from the portable, you know, and they're very distracting and you can set up as many rules as you want, like, you know, turn your cell phones off, but it seems like that umbilical cord's getting harder and harder to cut. And I don't mean to sound like some old fart, you know, like old man Schlegel, but yeah, you know, it's like, it's it, the distracted spectator can be, can be a challenge when you're teaching film studies, when they need to sort of immerse themselves into the, into the ter- into the narrative. Yeah, that that definitely is a challenge. Um, we talked about this a little bit, I think, last week or last episode. Yeah, but Chuck, um, Chuck chimed in on it too. Right, right. Yeah, for me, uh, I mean, there's still problems. Like the DVDs always, like I have a lot of problems with DVDs getting scratched, and you know, having they always have a Plan B and stuff like that. But one thing I've noticed is that students have a far greater access not only to the films themselves, but to um, information about films and. I have people come in with all kinds of knowledge um, about whatever it might be. It might be very narrow. Um, it might be, you know, it might be broader, but they can either access the knowledge or they have it already. And with the advent of DVDs and streaming video, I have students who come in. You know, I had a student a couple semesters ago who was really big into Blade Runner. He had all of the, I don't know how many versions there are of Blade Runner now. There are like 103 or something like that. And he had them all and he knew the differences between all of them. And, and that's not something you would have had even 10 years ago i don't think right um and certainly not before that so you get more knowledgeable students sometimes um a lot of times i think which is which is nice you know and it works for me too because i can always look stuff up on imdb if i forget the year or something but i think bob's right on the money in that i look back and see how i have i changed all that much in my dynamic as a professor no I, i you're right you know like we kind of are who we are and we just kind of you know, we hopefully improve with age, but no, I guess things haven't changed all that, that much, you know, except for the times. Yeah. And one of these days I'm going to put together a reel of the uh, old man Schlegel. I'm going to, I'm going to go through and it's going to be a kids these days, super cut. <laughs> but uh, no, I think so too. I mean, I just, you know, you become more confident as you yeah. teach, I think, as you, you know, as you're in front of classrooms and stuff. And I was trained as a teacher as well. So I, I had that coming in, but, um, but yeah, it doesn't change much, right? You know what you want to teach and you know how to get a point across, well. you know, and, but it doesn't stop roadblocks. You always have like, you screen the thin red line and nobody likes it. Now you're spending two hours going, what is wrong with you people? Don't you see, <laughs> don't you see this tracking shot over this grass and they, you know, or whatever it might be. Twitter, my uh, my professor was uh, pompous and assumed that I could I didn't get the film or something. Like that. Yeah, and then you know, there goes your rate my professor's score and uh, oh well, <laughs> right. So uh, thanks for thanks for doing this, Bob. We really appreciate it. We're glad we could catch you before you went back to Scotland. Uh, this has been this has been a really good conversation. I really uh, I really like this uh, this this episode. Absolutely. It's, it's wonderful to see you. It's wonderful that you're back in Detroit for a bit here. And, and thanks so much for coming on the show. It was our very great pleasure to have you. Thank you, guys. Uh, Nick and Eric, it's uh, two of my absolute all-time favorite people. And uh, every, every time I'm back in the Detroit area, I try to get together with these gents. It's not so easy to get the, the schedule right, but uh, this, this, was, this was fun for me. And uh, you guys are wonderful hosts. So thank you. That's a wrap.